invite you to take your scriptures and turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Robert Louis Stevenson published a novella on January 5th, 1886, entitled, and you probably know this, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's a story about a man, Dr. Henry Jekyll, who is a well-respected doctor and figure in his community. All of his life growing up, everyone thought that he was a very nice young man, and as he grew older, a very nice adult. But nobody knew that for most of his childhood and even into his adult life that he had a whole different inner life. And that inner life was filled with evil thoughts and desires that he actually never carried out. He called this in his own words, and I quote, a profound duplicity of life. One day, his brilliant mind schemed about how he could become two people. And so in his lab, he developed a potion that once he ingested it, would allow Dr. Henry Jekyll to become who he named Mr. Edward Hyde, the evil part of who he wanted to be. And so all he had to do is drink the potion, and his good self would turn into his bad self. And this transformation allowed him to enjoy all the pleasures of sin that he always wanted to do, but never acted out on without having to suffer any of the horrible consequences that went along with them. And being a divided person into two was a great thing for him for a while. Until he realized that the Mr. Hyde part of him was growing stronger and stronger every day. In fact, it was taking over. And until one night, in an animalistic rage, the the book says, he murdered someone in cold blood. And now, the Mr. Hyde part of him was a wanted man by the police. And so, Jekyll decided for his own good that Mr. Hyde would no longer be. So he stopped taking the potion and thought because of that, that everything was solved. But it wasn't. Because like as before, the Mr. Hyde part of him was growing stronger and stronger all the time until the point where Dr. Jekyll felt that he could hardly keep him down. He didn't have enough potion left to continue what he was doing. He thought he might not be able to get enough chemicals to remake it either. And so if he tried to transform one more time, he came to the realization that he may never transform back. And so the tension began to grow until one day... Dr. Jekyll's friend came and discovered Mr. Hyde dead on the floor with Dr. Jekyll's clothes on. See, he had really become the man that he was on the inside. He really tried to divide himself into two people, but in doing so, he eventually lost everything that he held dear. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees had a two-person righteousness, a Jekyll and Hyde righteousness, if you'll allow me to say it. And they wanted to be two people. They wanted a righteousness externally that looked good on the outside, see. But when it really came to who they were on their hearts, it was a totally different picture. And in our text today, chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, Jesus is going to give six examples to expose the external only righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and demonstrate to all those who would be his disciple and enter his kingdom what it would look like if you had a whole righteousness. And by whole, I mean this. 
Jesus gives six examples. The first one that we're looking at today and unpacking is murder. But he gives six of them. And at the end of it, if you would, in the last verse of this chapter, 548, here's the conclusion or the summary statement that Jesus makes. Ready? He says, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And if you read into, big word for you, anachronistically, if you read in 21st century understanding of that word into 1st century, you'll not get a proper interpretation. Because in the Bible, the word perfect seldom means what we think of sinlessness. We think of perfection as something that we're trying to attain but never will attain in this life. The Bible doesn't think that way. The Bible doesn't say perfection is sinlessness. Perfection is wholeness. W-H-O-L-E. Wholeness. Complete. Not divided. You see, the Pharisees, Jekyll and Hyde, righteousness was divided external from the internal. Jesus says, my disciples, true righteousness, kingdom righteousness is a whole righteousness. It's not divided to external and internal. It is one. They match. They go together. So let me ask you, any Jekylls and Hydes in here today? Anyone who said struggle, that's what I struggle with, Pastor Walker, a profound duplicity of life. Anyone drinking the potion this week or wish that you could? Maybe your wife would testify to you as the husband that you are Jekyll at church and you are Hyde at home. And the van ride over here to church proved it. Perhaps as teenagers you are Jekyll at home and to your parents and I read my Bible today and you do all the polite manners. But at school you are definitely Hyde. A whole different vocabulary, a whole different language, a whole different set of values, perhaps even morals is demonstrated. Jekyll at work to the boss, to the co-workers, kindness, patience, long-suffering, quite a different story to your wife or your spouse and children at home. And don't we? We try to hide our hide. Can you understand what I'm saying? We try to hide our hide. We don't want it to be let out. We want people to believe that we are the respectable Dr. Jekyll, that we are to be honored, and that we are a person of virtue and morality and at least religiosity. Jesus wants to expose the Jekyll and Hyde in all of us. He wants us to realize that that righteousness, that divided righteousness, that split spirituality, if you will, can't happen in his kingdom if you intend to follow him. And so what he does... As he starts out this major middle section with the little phrase, law and prophets, in verse 17. And he says it again over in chapter 7 and verse 12. And between those two big sections, what he's going to give is example after example about here's what the Bible says and what's going on in your heart. And don't, listen, please don't tune this message out today thinking that when Jesus says, you've heard it said, that you shall not murder, that you are clear today. Wow, at least I can settle back and relax today. Because Jesus is going to, as he always does, go far deeper than just the words of any command. Every one of these examples remaining in chapter 5, including the one today, follows this pattern. Jesus gives a Torah statement about what the Bible says. Then he gives the true intent of that statement. And then he gives the life application for it. So we're going to follow that same pattern as we unpack the first one. 
every one of these six examples in chapter 5, and you can see them. They're very easily delineated one at a time, and they are marked off by this little formula. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said six times. Every single one of them in very similar fashion is marked off with that. Noting this, that you have heard it said, meaning you think that the Bible only addresses the outside of your life. Jesus says, let me tell you the true intent. The true intent is not just to ask you whether you've actually physically murdered somebody. Jesus wants to go deeper than that. He wants to get down to where you are in your heart. So if I ask you today, are there any murderers here? Would you raise your hand? See, you're looking around and someone's going to see a See, but you should be looking inside, right? And the answer would be yes. Yes, there are. Now, you're not on death row today. But murderers, murderers, Jesus says, if you look at the text, are liable to judgment. That's what the verse says. Look at 22. But I say to you, let me show you the intent. When you read the command, don't murder, here's what you're supposed to read. Ready? I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, same phrase, will be liable. You think murder, you're liable to judgment? Jesus says, if you're angry with your brother, and I think the New King James says, without a cause. In other words, for an unrighteous way. Because anger in of itself is not wrong. Jesus was angry. But he says, if you are angry in a sinful way, you are liable to judgment. Did you see the video that went viral this week about the San Francisco Giant baseball team, the CEO? They were in a public place out in this um, area. There's a restaurant and there's a big patio out there. His wife's sitting on a chair. She's on the phone and someone's videoing. I don't know why they were, but they were. They come up to him. She has a phone. He comes over, reaches right over and grabs the phone and she yells, help, someone help me. (laughs) This is her husband. He takes the thing and he's yanking it out of her hand and eventually knocks her over on the ground and she says all kinds of things. I won't tell you all of them. And he he basically takes it out of her hand and she's screaming and yelling and people are videoing this thing. Now later, both of them got together and said they just had a small disagreement and they apologized. (laughs) But what was obvious by watching the video is the man, at least, had a lot of anger in her heart for whatever was on that phone that she was going to do with it. And that anger came out, and listen, it didn't even matter that he was the CEO and risked his job and millions of dollars and getting fired. You know why? Because that was what was going on on the inside. What they didn't do, the police came, they didn't arrest him and say, hey, you are arrested for first-degree murder. But on the inside, he was angry. Lose your temper this week? Did you go from zero to 60 like that? And I'm sure there was no yelling going on in your house. I didn't throw anything, Pastor Walker. Any cussing? Did you have to tell your kids to go to another room because Daddy and Mommy are having a discussion? By the way, your kids know what that means. Did you have to close the door because it was getting just a little too loud? You see, we blow that off. But Jesus says, beware, anger on the inside makes you liable for judgment. This is not just a serious grave error. Liable for the judgment. This is court he's talking about. And then he's going to go a little further. He says, and if you call or insult your brother 
and the word is raka, and the mean, it means, as I said before, stupid, idiot, empty-headed. It's an insult to someone's mentality or intellectualness, their, their, their mindset, who they are. Jesus says if you do that, you're going to be liable to the council. And the word is Sanhedrin. In other words, you're going to go to the Supreme Court on this one. 71 members of the Sanhedrin. And they're going to take you and make this official. And it's going to become public. And everybody's going to know about it. This is how serious it is. And then he says this. And if you go on from there and to say fool or moron. And this isn't just fool like you are a foolish person. This is fool like Psalm 14.1 says. The fool has said in his heart, no God. In other words, this is a person that you're indicting about their condition and relationship with God. That they don't even believe in him. Basically, you're condemning them to hell. And here's what Jesus says. Isn't it kind of ironic that when you say things that doom people to hell, that you yourself are dooming yourself to hell? See, that's how serious it is. Wow. And the word hell is Gehenna, the fire dump that burned trash outside the city that pictured eternal lake of fire. You say, Pastor Walker, you mean people are going to go to hell because of saying a few bad words and calling somebody a name? Yes. Why is God so serious about it? Can you turn to chapter 12 of Matthew? Jesus' words. The words of the Pharisees and scribes in the previous paragraph before 1233, they are calling Jesus all kinds of names. In his lifetime, they called him one who was born of fornication. In other words, his mom was illicit, and that's how he came into being. They called him a Samaritan, which was about the worst cuss word you could use at the time. They called him all kinds of things. And Jesus says to them, listen, you say anything you want against the Son of Man, and it can be forgiven. But there is an unpardonable sin in Jesus' day. You know what it was? When you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. If you attribute to the devil what is done through the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you watch Jesus, and you watch him perform the miraculous things, and cast out the demons, and heal people, and you listen to his divinely ordained speeches and sermons, and you can say all of that and take it all in and say the devil's doing all of that, there's no possible way that you're ever going to repent. See, because those words matter, he says. You blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it's not forgiven. And so here's what their argument with Jesus was. They said, Jesus, yeah, you do good things, but you're a bad person. And Jesus says it's illogical. It's illogical. You know why? Because Good things come from good people, and bad things come from bad people. Let me give you an example. Here's his argument. Ready? 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. And that's even true with trees, right? And Jesus says, you snakes, brood of vipers. You know what the problem is? How can you speak good when you are evil? See, the words that come out of their mouth to blaspheme Jesus and the Holy Spirit, where do they come from? They come from evil people. That's why they were saying these things about him, he says. Here's the principle, ready? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Do you see the connection? Why do words matter? Because they reveal who you really are. So when you go from zero to 60 and you yell things and you scream things and you cuss and you use profanity and you call your kids stupid and you make judgment calls on people's lives, eternal destinies, here's what Jesus says. You are telling more about you than them. That's what he says. Jesus would say this. Hell words come out of a heart that's from hell. 
Heaven words come out of a heaven heart. That's the reality, he says. And Jesus says, out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. I tell you, serious here, on the day of judgment, verse 36, people will give an account for every careless, it means unproductive, unfruitful, useless, demeaning word. Every word they'll give an account of on the day of judgment. You're going to stand before God, and God's going to open the books, Revelation 20. Not only the Lamb's book of life, but another book was opened, it says, and this is the book of all your works and all of your words. And he will ask you about them. Let me give you an example of how one word can change things. I've been watching the abortion debate, but those people who in the Senate who voted to allow babies to be aborted right up to the moment of birth, all they did was say yes. And that yes is recorded, and God's going to open the book. And if they don't repent of that, and they die without him to a Christless eternity, that book will open up, and that word, that one word of yes to a murderous act will be judged. And more recently, this last week, when they tried to pass a bill to say this, that if a baby is tried to be aborted, but it actually lives through the process and is born anyways, that you can't treat it as if it was aborted and still kill it. And that was voted no on. Now, when you put that one little word no out there, can I tell you this? That one word will be part of an argument about someone's eternal damnation if they don't repent. See, bad words don't be confused. Bad words are not just from a bad habit. They are from a bad heart. Jesus says, in verse 37, for by your words you will be justified, declared righteous is the word. And by your words you will be condemned. And the word is the righteous word with a prefix on front of it, kata, which means against. In other words, your righteousness will prove to be false. And as a result, the punishment and the sentence of your judgment will be carried out based on the record of your words. Let's say that you're here and God's here today and the book is open and he begins to say just the words that you said this week. The things that you said under your breath or in your mind when you didn't get your way and to your spouse and to your kids and to that person at work and your boss and that guy at church and that girl at church. And that's just this week. What is the judgment that he would come to? James chapter 3 says this, if you want to be a perfect person, you're going to have to tame your tongue. Because if you can tame your tongue, then everything else, the whole body can be controlled. Chapter 3 and verse 6 says, how, why is the tongue so important and the key to everything else? Listen to this, because the tongue is a world of unrighteousness and its words are set on fire by hell. You know why Jesus says your words will judge you and you might be in hell for them? Here's why. Because the tongue without God's regenerating force is set on fire by hell, he says. And if you want to be the complete person, he says, you want to be the complete person? He says your words have to match your walk and your testimony and what you believe. And then he says this. And he asks it in, in, in questions. Ready? Jekyll and Hyde words. He says, out of the same mouth, we bless the Lord and we curse people. 
He says this, from the same mouth, blessing and cursing. He says, can a spring both have salt water and fresh? The answer is no. It can't. Can a fig tree bear olives? No. Fig trees do figs and olives bushes do olives, right? Olives trees. Compare this, he says. Can a salt pond produce fresh water as well? No, it cannot. Why? Because the source is the issue. The source is the issue. What you are is determined by and revealed by what you speak. You are what you speak. Pastor Walker, what do I do about that? You got my attention. I understand how important words are. Well, what would I do? Let me, say, let me say if I've hurt someone, offended someone, I really, really ruined a relationship with someone because of the things I've said. What do I do? Jesus has a radical response for us. In verse 23, he says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Now let me tell you what that means. That's pretty serious. Every commentator believes that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount in Galilee. He's talking about doing a worship of a sacrifice in the altar on the temple in Jerusalem. They are 70 miles apart. There were no trains or buses or anything like that. You're walking. So here's what he's saying. You know how important it is to make it right with your brother when you've had words and anger that offended him? Here's what you do. You walk the 70 miles. Even though you're in Jerusalem and it took you a long time to get there, even though you might have to risk going back by yourself, even though you've done all the sacrificial things, purchased the animal, you've done the ritualistic washing and all the ceremonial stuff that took you all that time, he says, forget all of that. Drop it. Go back to where you were, back home, get it right, and then make all the trip and do everything over again and come back. Why? Because that's how important it is to God. That's what he says. He says, leave it there. You know why? Because here's what Jesus wants us to get today. you got to connect the vertical and the horizontal. Listen, if you are in the altar giving your sacrifice to God, God himself says this, drop all of that. Stop it. Get out of church, go find your brother, get it right, and then come back and make your offering acceptable, he says. That's what you need to do. He says you need to get it right, and that's radical, he says. And then he tells at the end that that's what, I shouldn't say at the end, let me back up a second. He says, do this, can you put it down in your Bible, circle it first? Notice the consequent or the, the chronological order. Do this first, then he says, do this. First, this, then this. Not the worship first, your brother first. Do this in this order, he says. And then he says, lastly, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to him. You're going to court. You know you're going to lose because you know you're guilty of doing this. So, how do you get to repair it? To reconcile, here's what you do. You're walking to court with the guy who's going to sue you. Here's what you do tell him, what do I owe you? Let me pay it to you now. Do it before you get to the judge. You know why? Because he's going to hand you over to the judge. The judge is going to hand you over to the guard. And they're going to put you in prison. If you know anything about prisons in the first century, it would make our prisons, as bad as they are, look like the Holiday Inn Express. They're awful places to be. And oftentimes, they would take, if you were the one who was guilty, they would take your wife and your children and put them into slavery. And they would become slaves until you could pay it off through their debt. And then Jesus says, let me tell you how serious it is. He uses this double negative, truly I say to you, which is 28 times. 28 times in Matthew's gospel, Jesus introduces a principle or a truth that he doesn't want anyone to miss. So he says, don't miss this. See what I'm going to tell you? 
Never. They will not let you out. Ever. Until you pay the last penny. And it's the word quadrants. A denarius, one day's wage. A quadrants was one sixty-fourth of a day wage. If you made $8 a day, a minimum wage today, $8 an hour, for eight hours, you get $64 in a day. It'd be Jesus like saying this, they're going to keep you in prison till you work off every last bit of it. They're not going to give you off any good time. They're not going to cut you any slack. They're not going to lessen your bill down to the very last dollar. You will pay it, Jesus says. And that's what he's saying about when you stand before God. If you don't get things right with your brother and you're angry and you have these words coming and you're talking like this and you're doing these things, here's what he says. You better get it right now before you stand before the judge because if you come to me with that heart, you're going to pay it all out to the very last dollar, Jesus says. You know what he wants us to get? He wants us to understand that true righteousness is about wholeness, holiness, not H-O-L-I, W-H-O-L-I, holiness, whole righteousness, outside, inside, together. When we were kids, they fed us this lie. You know it, I know you do, if you're my age at least. Sticks and stones, finish it. But it's a lie. Words hurt, don't they? If you've been on the giving end, or you've been on the receiving end, you know words hurt. There are people here today who could tell you stories that occurred decades ago, and they probably couldn't tell you the story without crying about it still, about what their parents called them, said they would never be, how awful things are, and what people said to them about spouses who said things that were so incredibly inappropriate and awful and demeaning that no one should have to listen to such language. I made up a quote this week, divided people divide people. In other words, people are divided on the inside in their heart. You know what they do? They divide other people. They do. Divided people divide people. People who have an external only righteousness and there's no heart in it. You know what happens? They take that home and families are divided. Parents are divided from children. Husbands from wives and wives from husbands. Friends who used to talk all the time don't talk at all anymore. Siblings who used to be close haven't even picked up a phone in years. And when you don't speak right, sometimes it ends up not speaking at all. And you can chalk it up that you said it out of anger and it wasn't that big of a deal, but Jesus would disagree. You ever heard the old phrase, if looks could kill? <laughs> How about this, if words could kill? Can I tell you? They do. They do. What do I do, Pastor Walker? Well, I leave church today and I get it right. That's what you do. Jesus would say, forget your gifts. Forget about the rest of the stuff. Before you come back to the evening service tonight, get it right. Stop hiding your hide. Stop the Jekyll and Hyde. Stop trying to be two people. Stop the split spirituality Stop faking it and start fixing it by the grace of God. See, it's radical because to do that, you have to be humble. Because the Bible in the text says this, not when you have a problem with your brother, but he has a problem with you. See, it's supposed to be coming both ways. 
He should be coming to find you, and you should be coming to find him. You know why? Because that's what brothers and family do. That's what we do. We come to find each other. You know why? Because we realize how serious God takes it. Because divided people divide people. And in order to keep our unity, we have to be serious about Jekyll and Hyde righteousness in our lives. And stop looking at the moat in other people's eyes, or the speck in other people's eyes, and take care of our own moats, Jesus would say. The question is, will you practice holiness in your relationships? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, we're going to sing 657 as we close, Search Me, O God. And I, before we sing, I just want to point out a couple phrases. The words are amazing. I praise thee, Lord, verse 2, for cleansing me from sin. Fulfill thy word, listen to this, and make me pure within as your head's bowed and your eyes closed, please pray this today. Not help me stop cussing. Not help me stop being so mean to my spouse or my kids. No, no, no. Go deeper. You're still on the outside, Torah. Get on the inside. Say, God, give me a kind of heart that loves kindness and patience and mercy and long-suffering and tell them, just like you show to me every day. See, that's what you need. See, we're not looking for external behavioral modification. We're talking about an exchange of hearts, heart surgery. I need it, Father. Tell them, this is why I cuss, and this is why I get angry. This is why I fly off the handle, and this is why my, my marriage is on the rock, and this is why my kids are so rebellious. It's me. Tell them, tell them. I need pure within. And then verse 3 says, Lord, take my life, make it holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, thine. God, I don't want to have, just give you part of it. I don't want to be guilty of saying, God, take this, this, and this, but you, I'm holding out here. No, holy, all of it, all of it. F- listen, fill my poor heart. Do you hear what he says? Not just my, my poor heart. Admit it to him. Your heart is weak. It's poor. It's insufficient. You can't change it. He has to. Tell him how poor your heart is. How weakly it beats for him. Fill it with thy great love divine. See the contrast? My poor heart, his great love. See, that's what I'm at. That's what I'm praying the Holy Spirit does. If you want to pray with someone about that at this altar with someone, we can just come forward. We'll do that. If you don't know Jesus and your heart's never been revolutionized eternally by his great love, come. We'd love to introduce you to the Savior who can change not only your heart and your words, but everything. Whatever your need is, you can come. You can do it right where you are. Maybe you just need to step out and find the person that you have problems with. Call them up today, an email, a text, a phone call, a visit in person, whatever it takes. God, give me that kind of heart. Father, surgery, heart transplant, That's what we need. You said in Ezekiel and Jeremiah that when the Christ came, you would write your law on their hearts. 
That would be the difference. Before your law was written on stone, but now it's written on our hearts, I pray, afresh and anew. Write your words on our hearts today for your glory and yours alone. In Jesus' name, amen.